better. My wife, my wife cut it for me. Um, let me pray for, before we get into this. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this sunshine, the weather, for fellowship, for love, for truth. And we beg you, we beg you for your wisdom. We beg you for your discernment. We want, we want what Dawn prayed. We want a big view of you. When everything seems to be falling apart, we want to be able to say that my God is still in control. And we believe that, sometimes only cognitively, only like just because it says it on the page, we recite it and we, we, we choose to believe it. But we want more than that. We want to be in fellowship with you so deeply that nothing worries us. That all the cares of the world, all the anxieties, all the fears get cast away. They're not even a part of our psyche, Father God, because we are looking at you in your face. We imagine your strength. We imagine your love. And your passion for this world and your people. So please give us that image of yourself this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Don. That was apropos for this morning. Um, today we're finishing up our second mini-series, four-week mini-series. If you haven't been with us, we've been doing these uh, these mini-series with some things in between. So next week, actually, our friend, uh, you don't know him, but I know him. His name is Doug Kozub. He's former missionary to Hawaii, which, which would be nice, right? And then he went to, uh, he was in China for about three years after that. Um, and he's going to come speak. We, they came and had dinner at our house a couple weeks ago. Three wonderful kids. Oh, my gosh, just tremendous kids. And, um, uh, you know, kids that, you know, are speaking like two, three languages and his daughter studying back in China. And uh, it's just incredible. Really cool family. You'll you'll like them. They if you ever watch the the movie Soul Surfer, um, they are friends with that family. They that they were there doing ministry with them when that all happened and you know stuff like that. So um, anyway, but so today we're finishing up the second of of three uh, mini series, four week mini series. So after Doug speaks, we'll go back into another four week series, and then we're going to have actually a couple other people speak, and I'm just really excited about these. So. Uh, but well, I'll leave it there for now. Uh, but we've been focusing, and I, you know, it, redundancy, like repetition, speaks, right? So you're not you're not going to forget this stuff because we're saying this stuff over and over again. We've been focusing on God's uh, covenant promise that He gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, and it's a two-part promise. If you remember, um, we have the top line. We're calling it the top line and the bottom line of the covenant. First of all, the top line is God's desire to bless Abraham and his descendants, uh, you know, as, as their God, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the bottom line of that is that God wants them to go and express that blessing to all the, the nations of the earth, all the ethne of the earth, all the people groups or ethnic groups of the earth, right? Um, he wants to uh, use Abraham and his descendants, of which we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, to go and reach the nations with the glory of God. And we see this all throughout Scripture. It is the, the sort of the base tone of Scripture. It's what keeps us going. Um, and our goal today is to explore four 
practical ways that we can be involved in impacting the nations for God's glory. Um, They are to be senders, to be welcomers, to be mobilizers, or to be goers. Now, I just want to let you know that I've been having great conversations. said this last week too, but I had another meeting this week. I went up to Ben Salem and I uh, taught English along with this other guy uh, as a second language of a bunch of Albanians, Brazilians, a few different people groups in there. Such a, it was so nice to be in that room with these people that, you know, just don't hardly know English and I'm just walking through it with them and stuff. And, and so I'm meeting with this guy to talk about, can we do that kind of stuff in this area, maybe in Upper Darby and with some different peoples and stuff. So I'm excited. And so exploring all these opportunities that we can be involved in, in as a church with this stuff. But um, let's start with becoming an effective sender. Uh, you know, the military used that, this, this phrase, this ratio, the tooth-to-tail ratio. Uh, if, if you've never heard of it, it's the number of sort of military personnel, the tail, which are needed or it takes to meet the needs of, of, of each single soldier uh, out on the field, out, of, out on the battlefield, and that is the tooth, obviously. And for every one soldier in the army... Uh, out on the field, out on the battlefield, there are 10 other people in the background that they need to keep them out there and supplied well. Isn't that a lot? It's a lot if you think about it, right? Uh, the Navy ha- used to have this plane called the A6 plane. I think they retired it back in the late 90s. But for one, every one hour of flight, there were 53 hours of maintenance needed on that plane. And how many people doing that maintenance you have to count it up to as well, right? So it's tremendous support is needed to keep soldiers out there on the field and well supplied for for the battlefield and stuff like that. And I think the same is true for missionaries. Um, For every one missionary unit, for a single person or a married couple or a whole family out there, it takes on average about 55 supporters, financial and prayer supporters, to keep them out on the field in full-time Christian work. It's kind of amazing. Um, we support one couple in North Africa as a church, if you don't know, and, uh, and w- they need to be supplied well for their kingdom work out there. We, we send them money each month, and uh, we give them bonuses at the end of the year when we can. And uh, Finances are, are a very much a spiritual matter. Money is a spiritual matter, right? And, uh, and it, just as much as our prayers are that we send. We also, if you don't know, support two full-time workers in a Middle Eastern country and the work that they do. I'm not allowed to share their names uh, of any of these people or where they are for uh, danger's sake, stuff like that. But um, we support them in full, full, their full salaries. This church supports those two women out there working, doing wonderful work among women in this Middle Eastern country. And uh, Kim and I, when we were on the field, had a number of people, individuals and churches, I think we had three churches that that were supporting us and about probably about i I think around 75 people that that uh supported us both in uh prayer and finances individuals and then three churches so it's quite a number of people actually you know uh paul says it this way in romans chapter 10 verses 14 and 15 he says how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they've not they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, I don't want you to think of preaching as a, in, only in what I'm doing right now. Preaching is really 
can be in that one-on-one conversation where you're preaching, you're proclaiming the gospel of Christ to somebody, right? So just remember that. And then he says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Unless they are sent. So Paul is addressing the variables that are involved in reaching the nations. You know, basically, the nations aren't going to reach themselves. The nations aren't going to re- be reached without us sending someone to them, right? And no one's going to be sent unless there are people to get behind them, both in prayer and in finances, right? This, pra- this is simply practical down-to-earth instruction from Paul. Senders are vital to the Great Commission work to see God's glory and our, and our greatest joy fulfilled, right? Unfortunately, because many Christians are only focused on the top line of God blessing their lives, you know, that top line of the covenant, which is okay to, you know, to want and desire God's blessing in your life, that's fine. But because we've only been focused on that, um, we've forgotten the bottom line, and we haven't been good senders. And some of us have never done it at all, right? Now, some of you may be putting money in, into six eights ministry, and by default, it's some of that is going to to the sense to the to the field. So be encouraged by that. But um, we really want to think more about this and be more involved in it. Um, but we have been so taken up or involved in our materialistic uh, culture that we do very little in supporting cross-cultural missionaries, if any at all, right? So here's a great way to learn how to avoid materialism, the trap of materialism. Simply, you know, set a limit of how much you need to live on and then stick to it, right? Right? Set a limit and stick to it. In other words, let's say that you just got out of college or you're getting out of college soon and your first job brings you really kind of like only half of what you really need. You know, we always kind of start out low in our first career, uh, you know, paycheck and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and, and you decide, well, I'm, I can only really kind of eke out 3%, um, you know, as a tithe to, the, to, to God's kingdom. And that's, all, that's it. And that's okay. You know, that's, that's fine. But in time, you get raises, but you choose not to raise your standard of living. Now you can tithe 10% without any problem. And then in 10-year time, you get more raises, and your career you know, accelerates, and your income increases. And, and, uh, and if you avoid the temptation to, to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, you can actually tithe 20%, right? Wouldn't that be crazy? And then after 20 years, let's think about it. After 20 years, you are actually tithing 55% of your income. You know, some people do this. And your accountant thinks you're crazy. <laughs> and everybody else around you says, you know, why are you doing that? But you are impacting the world for the gospel of Christ. All because your income increased, but your standard of living didn't. That's a pretty big deal. And that's where most of us get lost. Typically, when income increases in our life, so does our standard of living. We just spend more, right? And we always give it the same percentage or sometimes even less as we get older and income increases. You know, this only works if someone is committed to capping their, 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 uh, their needs and tithing to the Lord. 
Unfortunately, you know, the Barna Group research, they do all kinds of Christian research out there, they, that tells us that, like, for in, 2000, in 2007, for example, only 5% of all adults tithed, gave money to the kingdom of God. Only 5% of all adults. Isn't that amazing? And then among all the born-again Christians, there's a very small, much smaller subgroup, right? Only 9% of them tithed 10% or more. And I, I, I'm not, my wife hates when I do this. I'm going to tell you, we tithe over 20% of our income. And I don't tell you that to puff myself up in front of you, but to tell you that I'm not saying to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Right? The trend today is the more that you have, the less you give. It should be the opposite way. But the more you have, the less you give. That is the trend today. We may be giving bigger amounts than the guy sitting next to us, maybe, but percentage-wise, we give less away. God is far more interested in percentages, right? I would think so. The, the widow's might was extremely powerful, not because it was a great, huge financial gift, but because it was a great percentage of all that she had, right? Finances are a spiritual issue, and you can't avoid that. And it's, uh, they're just as important as vi- and, and vital to the church's prayer. What was that? Anyway, uh, let's, let's move on to number two, becoming an effective welcomer. And I think this is probably something that's really on my heart for our church right now. There are students all from all over the world coming right here to America, to the U- United States of America, to study in our universities, right? We know that, we, even in our high schools. Well over, well over a million students, and I, I, I didn't look up the exact number, but I know that at least well over a million students are in the United States studying each year. And each one has tremendous real and felt needs, right? One Libyan student came uh, to Columbus, Ohio to study, and Muslims, as you probably know, don't eat pork, and he was very concerned about this, so he went to Kentucky Fried Chicken, because he figured there's no pork there at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and after eating lunch, he, you know, he wasn't sure where to throw his trash, so he went to the nearest trash can, which he didn't realize was actually a post office box, and he threw his trash in there. He, didn't, he had no idea what he was doing was wrong, Right? One week, uh, a while back, I had, um, I had some foster kids here that were, uh, they don't speak any English, and while I was preaching, you guys don't know this, but while I was preaching, I watched one of them get up and walk to the back of the room, and it's funny how you can be preaching a sermon and still have a conversation in your head, and he's walking back to the back of the room, and I'm thinking to myself, he's not going to know what bathroom to go into, because I've never taught him what men and women are in English. And, and so I watched, and sure enough, he looked at both the signs, and he walked right into the women's bathroom. And I didn't say anything, because I knew nobody was in there, and I just figured, well, if a woman gets up and go in there, I'll, I'll stop the sermon and say, hey, don't go in there right now. But, but that's what he did. He just walked right in there. He had no idea, right? Um, <laughs> but I remember a friend of mine visiting me in Indonesia when I was serving there, and he, you know, he didn't know anything about the culture. He had never walked into a mosque before, anything like that. And he went in. <laughs> oh my gosh! He went in, and he unintentionally one time received, re- relieved himself in the ablutions, like the the ceremonial washing trough, thinking that it was a, a urinal, and I. <laughs> <laughs> and he walks. He walked out 
kind of zipping up, and I said, did you just go to the bathroom in there? And he's like, yeah, isn't that the bathroom? I'm like, no, it's not the bathroom. Let's get out of here before somebody finds out and kills us, right? <laughs> but sorry if you're watching from Indonesia, but um, uh, I had another great story, but Don, or, uh, uh, Don Kathleen and I um, thought better I shouldn't say it, so, but I'll tell you privately if you come to me later, and it's a really good story, but but the, the point is that international students living in the States, they come over here and they are often very lonely, they're very homesick, and they're very afraid of making mistakes, right? Uh, they don't know how to do a lot of the things that would come normally in their, in their home culture. They wrestle with culture shock. They wrestle with language like we do. They don't know how to get a deal on something or where to go and buy something or how to mail a letter or how to call home or how to write a check. And they, and they sort of live in this fear and this uncertainty. How do I know that? Because I lived in it in Indonesia when I didn't speak the language, right? But above all, they desperately want a friend. That's all they want, a friend. A friend that can help them. Isn't it great when you're in some place you don't you're unfamiliar and somebody says, "Oh, you got to go this way." You know, they just walk you. Th- I'll walk you there, right? Isn't that a great thing? So, are you qualified to be a friend to somebody? Well, if you can pick somebody up at the airport and take them home, right? If you can figure out their address and put it in your phone and get your map up and take them to their house. If you can tell the difference between a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter. If you could shop for food and clothing here in Bryn Mawr or in Philadelphia or whatever, if you could set up a bank account and write a check, or if you could invite somebody over for dinner here to your house, you would be a great welcomer, right? That's all you got to do. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be like some theologian. (laughs) All you got to do is be welcoming, 60% of international students are here in the United States are from the 1040 window. You may or may not know what that is. I don't know. But it is where the most unreached people groups of the world are located. It spans 10 degrees latitudinal north and 40 degrees latitudinal north. And it goes from West Africa to Southeast Asia. It's not just the the people groups in that box. I think this map actually shows, yeah, the colored uh, countries there are... It's just sort of a, a marker, right? But that's, that's you know, uh, it's home to roughly two-thirds of the world's population. Two-thirds, let me say that twice. Two-thirds of the world's population live in that region, right? It's where the majority of all non-Christian religions have their headquarters, Right? It's, it's, uh, the, these are all the countries that are closed that, for Christian witness, that it's a really difficult, if not impossible, for a missionary to get into. And they are coming to us. Sad thing is that I just saw a, a bunch of them interviewed on a YouTube thing. I forget what it was exactly, but they were asking them, do you want to go study in the States? And they're like, yeah, we're not really too into that anymore. America is so screwed up. That's our witness to the world right now. All of our politics, all of our garbage is just being poured out to the world, and it's going to have an effect on these kinds of things. But in fact, over 300 presidents and prime ministers of other countries have studied in America. Isn't that amazing? It includes the former president of Georgia, 
You remember the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan? He studied here. King of the King of Jordan, the Crown Prince of Norway, the President of the Philippines, the Crown Princess of Japan, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, the Prime Minister of Taiwan, or the President of Taiwan, and the President of Liberia. That's only a few of them. Over 300. Think about that. list goes on and on and on with influential leaders in, in politics and business that have studied in the United States. That's our legacy. Imagine having the future king of Jordan over to your house for dinner before he figured out how important he was and would come to your house for dinner. Right? And you had a relationship with him for four years and you kept pray, and you prayed over him every night that he came to dinner. Once a week, you said, hey, you know what? I'm going to bless you while you're here studying in America. Why don't you come to my house and have a home-cooked meal every Sunday night? What an impact on the world you might have for, this, you know, for the gospel. You actually, by having somebody over for dinner, could save thousands of lives because that guy might go back to his country and say you know christians really aren't that bad they're they're really lovely people and he could make decisions about christians in his country not to be killed because more people have died more christians have died in the past 30 years than they did in all the centuries leading up to now for the sake of the gospel my friend bakri um, he was an Indonesian businessman pastor. Uh, he leads a church right in the center of Lampung, right in the center of all these unreached people groups of Lampung, 12 unreached people groups, people that, you know, pretty much Kim and I at one point were the only people there trying to reach the Lampungese. And he studied in the States before going back to open businesses and pastor a church. And how could he have been more and better prepared if Loving Christians surrounded him and encouraged him to go back and taught him these principles of the scriptures to go back and share the gospel with those people groups. Because typically, churches in these areas don't reach out to those people groups. So it's not just other religions that we affect directly. We affect them indirectly by preparing good native Christians to go back and administer to those that they normally wouldn't. I have an Indonesian living at my house right now who's studying theology. I pray to God he'll go back and reach reach all those unreached people groups in Indonesia with the gospel, that he'll be a part of that, right? But unfortunately, 80% of international students, 80% of them never set foot in an American home ever while they're here. Possibly because we're so focused on the top line of the covenant that we are, we're, we're blind to what God is doing right under our noses. What he's, the opportunities that he's providing for us right there. Then we have mobilizers, right? We, people who have a passion to see God glorified uh, globally and to, and to mobilize others to be involved with all of that. There are three practical ways that you can mobilize people to this. Firstly, we can just simply start or join a prayer group, right, for the nations when they, uh, where, where we, you know, sort of choose a political nation and we go, go to this book right here. This is called Operation World. It's always back there on the, on the shelf. I just ordered a few more, um, 
haven't, haven't come in yet, but Operation World lists all the different people groups of the world. Not by nation, like, not, like, you go, you'll go to the Czech Republic or you'll go to, uh, you know, Republic of China, Taiwan or, you know, whatever. And then you can look up all the different people groups in that area and you can get information on them and you can pray for them. Right? Um, by the way, the stuff on my people group in Indonesia, I wrote in this book, so. Um, but, you know, just find out what people groups there are, get people together and start praying for those people. You know, how many groups in that country are reached, how many are unreached, you know, what are the, what are the obstacles, what, what are the needs, and all that kind of stuff, and pray through that information. Be very helpful. Uh, you can also use materials from joshuaproject.net if you ever go there. Joshua Project is kind of does the same thing that Operation World does. They highlight different people groups, but you can get information all you know on the online by it. Uh, really helpful thing. You could take this 30-day prayer guide that I was late in getting this year. Um, it came in the mail late. Uh, just this week it came in. But this is a 30-day prayer guide for the month of Ramadan. I don't know if you know, we're right in the middle of it right now. I think it ends May 12th. Yeah, May 12th it ends. And this is a great time to be praying for the Muslim world, for people to come to know Christ and for, you know, the, the gospel to go out. Um, by the way, any book, any organization that I mentioned today is in the printed sermon if you ever want to go there and you can look it all up and uh, find stuff. But um, Or you might pray for through one of the... the uh, main unreached uh, religious blocks of the world. And an easy way to remember that is by your thumb, right? T-H-U-M-B, thumb, right? You know, tribal groups or Hindu groups or the unreached or the unchurched, that is atheists, agnostics, uh, those outside of the church completely. It's sort of, sort of the secular block. Many people think of the, the whole country of China when they think of the unreached uh, group. Uh, Muslims, and then Buddhists, right? So T-H-U-M-B. And, you know, and don't get discouraged, even if you're the only person, or even if you have two people or three people praying. You know, Remember, James 5, 6, 16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. God will use that to touch the nations. He, he definitely will. Secondly, we can teach people about God's heart for the nations. Most Christians are absolutely clueless about this stuff, and they don't know a fraction of what you know after sitting through all these sermons, right? And you have all these sermons in print format or online to watch or to listen to. All that information is there, and uh, there are other avenues too you, you can use. And so you can teach other Christians about this stuff, right? You know, your community group could do a book study with the... Uh, this book, Unveiled at Last, you might have to get it from me because this might, they, I think this is out of print right now, but a great book to use and um, I'm going to be taking people and if you're interested, please contact me, but, but through, uh, uh, it's called everyinternational.com, everyinternational or something like that, .com, and it's uh, got this video training course on how to, to, um, to reach internationals among you. It's, it's pretty cool. Uh, sort of resource, very simple, 15-minute video, sit and watch and then discuss it together and pray through it, things like that. that that's, a, that's a helpful thing. Um, this is the quintessential book on, on uh, missions, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Phenomenal book, if you ever want to read that. This is pretty much, you know, your, the stuff that you're hearing through these sermons is in that. Uh, you could gather people and go through the You Teach series from Unveiling Glory 
unveilingglory.com. That's pretty much all of these sermons that you're hearing is from unveilingglory.com. I got a lot of this information from them, uh, kind of made it my own, but it encompasses all this stuff and for, for the past eight weeks and then the four weeks in front of us. And they have plenty of other resources on their site as well that you can use. You could plan a study this fall, like September, or maybe even starting in August, uh, because by that time you're going to start to forget what we've been talking about all these weeks, right? You want to keep this stuff alive, because this is actually the, the point on the spear, right? It's the point of the arrow. This is, you know, we, we, if we forget this stuff, Acts 1.8, you get Acts 8.1, right? Remember that from last week. So teaching is important, super important. It's been said that when you hear a message, you know, it changes your mind, maybe. When you study a message, it might change your heart. But when you teach a message, it changes your life. When you start to teach people things, you know, you really learn well. I remember, I always tell people that when I was in Indonesia, I was struggling along learning, learning language. I was probably, I think I was about a year and a half into my language learning. And, you know, you... You have uh, five levels in language. Five is a native speaker. Uh, usually a guy learning a second language might get to a level four if he's really good. And it's like you, there's hardly a difference between the two, but you still are below a native speaker. I was struggling along. I was probably at a two and a half or you know, maybe a three. I don't know what it was. But, man, I, I got an opportunity to go teach for two straight days. Oh, it was so t- like eight or nine hours a day I'm teaching in Indonesian to all these Indonesians, and I'm just like, oh, I had all the notes. Somebody just gave me all the notes. I'm like, all right, so I did it. I was so tired. The first night I got home, and I was staying with this old military, like, uh, uh, what, what is it? Not Australia, but New Zealand. New Zealand missionary guy, really rough old dude, really cool guy. And I come home the first night. I'm so tired. I come into his house, and he goes, uh, and I, I said, oh, dude, I'm going to take a bath and go to bed. He goes, oh, no, you can't, you can't do that. He goes, you have to teach in 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, what? He, uh, not teach. He goes, you have to preach in 15 minutes. I'm like, what? Are you serious? He goes, yeah, they're waiting for you at the church. You've got to preach a sermon. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, dude. <laughs> and thank the good Lord I had something fresh in my mind, so I went and preached the sermon in Indonesian, and then I woke up the next day and taught for another nine hours. But after that weekend, my language was top-notch. I was like, I would go out with Indonesians after that, and they'd be like, Lo, Bapa, seperti orang Indonesia. Like, oh, Bapa, you're like an Indonesian. I can't tell the difference. I'm like, yeah. You know, it was just so, it was so cool. But man, when you teach something, you really learn it, right? So teach this stuff. Often, you know, when you just sit there and listen, it's in one ear and out the other. But when teaching changes a person. A third way to mobilize is to go on a short-term trip and and to take others with you. Uh, Kathleen was saying this morning that I bugged her a couple years back to go to a country. I can't say the name of the country. But I bugged her to go to the the name of this country to uh, help us, you know, in the ministry there. And I, I had to ask her three Sundays in a row to get her to go. And she didn't really want to go. And then she, she goes, well, I thought I'd ask God if he wants me to go. So I asked God. He said, I want you to go. And so she went. And she goes, I, it was just such a profound experience. You know, I, I don't know if you know how profound it is to go on a short-term trip. If you've never been on one, you should go on one. If you've been on one, you probably should go on another one. Um, I'd love to send a handful of you over to that place over there in the work that we support it won't cost you a dime, 
Because it shouldn't cost you a dime because we want to be involved in sending you. So we would raise that. You would send out a support letter. We'd raise that money and send you out. It'd be awesome. It's not a vacation. I'm not saying that, but it is a a profound experience. Um, There are some great mission agencies out there that have short-term experiences often and you know, at church, we hear we, we only support really reputable, holistic, theologically solid agencies, not just anybody. There's a lot out there that I would not send you through, right? So don't go committing to something before you talk to your pastor. I just think, don't think that that's too wise. Um, but for instance, Pioneers, who we used to be involved with, they do excellent short-term trips. Uh, they do it to all five blocks of the unreached peoples of the world, those big blocks, the thumb, Right? WEC, which is right here in Fort Washington, they run good trips. They, they, they do all over the world as well. And there are plenty of others out there. Short-term trips are essential. It teaches you so much. We were talking this week about, you know, uh, you, know you study, you study, you study. You, get, you, you, you study theology. You, you sit with your Bible and you read your Bible. But it's like, it's like, a, it's like a surgeon in school, right? You, you go to school, you learn all this stuff about you know, cutting people open and you know, you know, fixing hearts and stuff like that. But it's not till the day that you do your residency or your fellowship or whatever it is where you actually get to make the incision and hold a beating heart in your hand that all of that comes alive. Short-term trips do that, right? Didn't we say that? See, he was in there. Um, but uh, Willow Creek Church, if you know them, they're outside of Chicago, real big evangelical church, came to a point where they realized that in their crowd, they had, real, they had 10-year-old believers who were very strong, very mature believers, right? And then they had all these other 10-year-old believers that were sort of very shallow in their faith. Like, remember, Paul talks about them only drinking milk when they should be eating meat by this point, right? And they did some research, and what they found was kind of shocking to them. The answer, which came up over and over again, involved these people working in a cross-cultural context, right? That church members would say, when I got outside of myself, outside of my comfort zone, and I went over to the inner city of Chicago, even, right? Or I landed in Haiti, or when I went over to the Middle East, Or when I got out of the routine patterns of my life and I saw God working in a fresh way through some sort of cross-cultural capacity, it made me rethink everything. Maturity is shaped through risk. Maturity is shaped through risk. Safety is a boatload of you-know-what. We're going to speak about that in a minute. As a mobilizer, you could have a far greater impact, you know, by staying rather than going. You ever think about that? Uh, maybe God doesn't want you overseas to plant, you know, one church or two churches among people who've never heard the gospel. Maybe God wants you right here to touch people who will go instead. And as a result, maybe a hundred churches or two hundred churches get planted all over the globe because you purposefully mobilized others that you purposely engaged god on his word and what he's doing in the world and became more active in it mobilizers are strategic people committed to getting other believers involved in spreading god's glory across the globe and finally our last option is to actually be a goer someone who goes one who actually sort of leaves the comfort of home 
and goes to a difficult place to evangelize and plant churches where none exist. Now, let's focus on three reasons why many never um, become goers. And remember last week, we saw how God uh, sent most of the people out in the book of Acts through persecution. It wasn't their choice to go. They got scattered, right? That God just scattered them among the nations so that they would... And remember, it says that at, wherever they went, they preached the gospel. That's why things happened, right? So we want to be obedient to the Lord. We don't want to have to be scattered. We want to be obedient. The, and the three reasons people don't do it, number one is Christ's lordship. Our view of Christ's lordship. Number two, or lack thereof. Number two is safety. And number three is family and friends. So most Christians have a limited view of Christ's lordship. If you think about it, it only goes so far. They'll say, well, I'll follow you as long as I'm happy. I'll go to church. I'll tell, you know, I'll, I, I see all my friends at church anyway. It's kind of a fun place to be. I'll sing on the worship team, you know, because I love singing and that's fine. But, you know, if you want me to teach Sunday school, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. Really hard to get Sunday school teaching. And if you want me to go overseas, there's absolutely no way. I'm not going to do that, right? Limited lordship. Limited lordship. They'll do whatever God wants of them as long as it makes them feel happy happy and comfortable doing it. I'm not sure where we get that from the Scripture. Most Christians don't say, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll say anything for you, Lord. I don't know if you saw on our Facebook page... um, that I posted a video of Francis Chan. If you don't, go to 6-8's Facebook page, watch that video. There's also a little stack right there of this article that goes along with that video about Francis Chan saying, this, this says, Chan explains this cultural shift in an American church where married couples and parents have become so focused on their own families and building their own future that they have forsaken the mission of God. And then he says down at the bottom here, not only are you missing out on life, but we are turning away our children by droves because our lives are not the adventure that they see in Scripture and they are not experiencing the Holy Spirit. When we live a safe gospel, we lose it. We lose it. We really do. Sorry, I, now I don't even know where I am. But uh, we may have to do things that frighten us, that don't make us comfortable, that don't actually bring us our happiness a, a, a Harley Davidson Road King would make me really happy right now. I would uh, just, I would have, maybe I have to give that up, that, that little dream. So we limit where we'll go. We limit what we'll do. We limit what we'll say. And in that video, that's exactly what Francis Chan says. And I was just so overjoyed to see that yesterday. He says, we, we, we won't go anywhere. We, uh, we, we need to say we'll do anything and we'll say anything. We'll go anywhere for the Lord, Right? See, we think missions is like sort of the graduate level of Christianity that after somebody's prayed enough, after they've studied the Bible enough, after they've done enough ministry and had enough fellowship with God's people, then we can say that we'll do anything for God's mission. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works at all. It's sort of like chucking somebody off the boat and saying, swim, right? And God will let you swim. Scripturally, that's not the case. we, We don't live... In safety here, we, in Matthew 10, 38, we read the words, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
We read again in, in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Picking up your cross to the people that read that for the first time only meant one thing. Death. That's all it meant. Didn't mean anything else. Because anybody carrying a cross was going to their own death. That was a visual image. So they were to realize that life was not about them. It was not about their Christian American dream. They were to completely die to self. All dreams, all desires, all hopes, all aspirations, all are to be sacrificed at the foot of the cross. Romans 12.1 says it, says it this way. It says that we are to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. A living sacrifices have three characteristics, don't they? The past means absolutely nothing to them. They have no plans for the future, and they can only look up. Basic Christianity says, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll say anything for your kingdom. I am a living sacrifice. This is the absolute starting point and ending point of Christianity. This is what it means to call Christ your Savior and your Lord. He is Lord, and, you know, He can have me do anything. He can call me to anything. If Jesus says, jump, I say, how high? This is what it means to give God control. We, we say that so flippantly. Oh, I will give the Lord the control of my heart. But many of us have not given Christ his due lordship in our lives. We want to be saved from going to hell, but we haven't really given God control of our entire life. So what we say on our lips and what is in our hearts are two very different things. With our mouths we say, I'm willing to go. Because that sounds right. That sounds like, oh, it sounds very spiritual. I should be willing to say that. But, But our hearts never ask the question. We never wrestle with it in our hearts. And we, you know, maybe we're waiting for that elusive call from God, which we, which really doesn't come while you're sitting around in your house, that we talked about last week, right? And quite honestly, we hope that call doesn't ever happen, never comes. Lordship is the number one reason we don't have enough missionaries to reach the world out there. Moving on to safety, oh, this could be one of America's greatest sins. Most Christians would never go overseas because it's unsafe. Every time I've run a, a short-term trip as a pastor, I brace myself when I get young people going because I get a phone call from mom and dad. And I've had some hot conversations with moms and dads, even moms and dads of older people. It's amazing. The only thing that sells more in America than sex is safety, but ironically not safe sex, right? No, that doesn't sell at all. Where did we get safety from in the gospel? Where do you read that in the pages? It's not there. It is absolutely not there. In Matthew 10, 16 through 19, we read this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and and the Gentiles. That doesn't sound safe to me. 
In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And to most of us, that thinking is absolutely, totally foreign. And, and to preachers like Joel Osteen, it's not even in the message. It's not your best life. Don't, don't listen to that guy. I'm sorry. I'm going to just start naming these people, man. It is just disgusting. Disgusting. Look at what the author of Hebrews says uh, happened to those that came before us in the gospel. It says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And they were killed with a sword. Not safe at all. And it's getting more and more unsafe. Yet we expect and we demand safety. Where did the idea come from? It came from our culture. It came from fear. Just living in fear. And man, we are living in fear like crazy right now across this country. We are not destined for safety. In fact, we're destined for something quite different. In 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3 it says, So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, you know quite well that we were destined for them. We are destined for trial. And I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I wrestle under that. I wrestle under that. If we're destined for them, some even to the point of death, why are we preoccupied with living a safe life? We can't determine God's will for our lives beginning from the standpoint of safety. If we do, just like Francis Chan says, we will miss out on God, what God wants for us. And our kids will sniff it out. And they won't care anymore. Finally, the last reason most people would never go into cross-cultural missions is that we don't want to leave friends and family. We say, I could never leave my parents. I could never take their grandchildren from them. That would just kill them. And it would kill me. My parents had to do it. They're not dead. (laughs) Right? Almost. Almost, Granny says. I could never leave my best friends. Oh, what would I do without my friends? What would I do without these people in my life? Arguments from sheer emotion. And without realizing it, family and friends quickly take a higher priority than God. And we all know what that is. Idol worship. Jesus said in Matthew 10.37, He who loves father and mother, sorry mom and dad, But he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. My wife comes second to Jesus in my life. My kids come second to Jesus in my life. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. This is what our king says. Friends, family, Parents, grandparents can't become high, higher priority in our lives than obedience to Jesus. They can't. 
If they do, then we've successfully communicated that we love them more than him and they have become an idol. Our love for God must be greater than our love for anyone or anything else. So we're always ready to say, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, and I will say anything for your kingdom, Lord Jesus. We don't want to miss out on God's will because we're unwilling to leave friends and family. So we've seen four avenues to involve ourselves in God's work. We can become senders, we can become welcomers, we can become mobilizers, and we can become goers. And hopefully, I, th- I hope that God is speaking to you about where uh, he wants you to, to be involved in one of these areas. And it's possible, actually, to be involved in all four or a combination of, of, of a number of them. I have over my lifetime. God's working towards the phenomenal goal of his greatest glory and our greatest joy. This life is a blip on the screen. We're talking eternity. What's really important for eternity? Is that really how much money you got in the back? I don't think so. I don't think so. So let's join him and let's step out in faith in at least one of these three areas, or four areas. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your table today, may we be reminded of that night that we that you stood before your disciples and you said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And just, you know, a few days later, you go to the cross. (laughs) Just hours away. All that becomes a reality. And then three days later, you rise from the dead and we can't believe our eyes. If you did not rise from the dead, this all would have died with you. But you did rise. And you did call us to this task. And you did model it. In every way, shape, and form, in word and deed, you modeled it. Father, it's like, it's like the church is a sleeping giant. We pray that you would wake it up. That you would make us to stop being concerned about cultural silly things. Wake us up to your task, your mission, for the sake of your glory in this world. And so as we come to this table today, maybe be reminded of that. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us in our hearts where you would want us to share in this. Christ, name we pray. Amen. Um, we are going to come to the Lord's table, and if you haven't been with us since COVID, you've been using these um, little things. There's a there's a bread thing in the bottom, and then your, uh, your grape juice is on the top. So uh, we invite you right now to come up anytime you feel led to and, and grab that. Even after the service, it'll still be here for a while, and you can come up and, and take some of that. And uh, do that prayerfully, uh, and, and we'll give you a few minutes of silence to do that, and then uh, Don, Donna will come up and do the So uh, let me close this out in prayer. Father, we thank you, and we ask that you would bless us, but that we would take that and turn it around and go and bless the nations with it. We pray that you would make us cognizant of the people around us, 
that you would make us uh, cognizant of the opportunities that you place before us, both to reach people that are just like us, but also to reach people that are not like us. We pray that you would stretch us and, and challenge us in these ways more than ever before. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good week.